everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're celebrating the one year anniversary of our podcast. Woohoo! Plus a fun football fact and a whale tale from Down Under from paleontologist Ben. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. It's our anniversary! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening and subscribing and for supporting us in this endeavor. It's really so crazy that we have been doing this for a year, and I just love talking to you guys and love talking about whales, and we love doing this and hearing from you. We have gotten a lot of questions from our listeners over the past year, and we've been doing a lot of reflecting, and we decided that one of the things that we both get asked often, and we kind of, you know, reflect on ourselves often, is that over our lives, the three of us have had the opportunity to do some pretty incredible and also ridiculous things when it comes to cetaceans, and that's kind of why the three of us are our best friends and why we wanted to put this podcast together. So (laughs) for in honor of our anniversary, we're going to tell you a little bit about how we got to where we are, starting with when and how we all fell in love with whales. So Lindsay, do you want to tell us how did you get started on the trail to whale? Um, Okay, so how I fell in love with whales... I have literally no recollection of this. I think it was just kind of a thing that happened because I, oh, like it was one of those things. I was a girl. It was the 90s. I was a swimmer. So that just kind of meant dolphins because that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I read Ring of Endless Light by Madeline Lingle and that kind of just pushed everything forward into extreme dolphin love and then I think I had to do like this like career project thing for cap which is career and um personal Personal planning planning. yeah Yeah. that's what it is yep birth control woo um which so you had to like pick a career and like decide what you were going to be or something and my dad suggested marine biology I think I was like 13 at that point it was like right when I was quitting swimming and my entire life was a giant mess um but I'm like oh sure and that was kind of that. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, for me, I don't remember not liking whales. Like, when I was little, um, when I was really little, my dad was still a student, so we could go to the aquarium for really cheap, uh, because the family membership is a really good deal, and then the student membership is an even better deal at the aquarium um, for annual membership. So we would go every week, at least, <laughs> if not more. Um, well, it's a good thing to do with three children. Three kids, and my mom would take us, or my dad would take us. We would go with friends, um, especially, like, when I was in kindergarten, we would go, like, in the afternoon after kindergarten, or we would go oh, on yeah. the weekends, or all, like, we went a lot. Um, and so I just, like, always loved everything there, but I especially, I think, loved the whales and dolphins. And, yeah, it just sort of became one of those things, like, I would be at the beach with friends and we would like pretend that we were looking for um for whales out in the ocean you know we're at the beach near downtown vancouver so in the 80s we weren't going to be seeing whales um now it's not impossible but back then it was very unlikely yeah and then we would dig around in the tide pools and like yeah just sort of exploring at the beach 
Um, not really seeing anything super exciting, but everything that we saw was very exciting. And also, like, the imaginary whales that we saw were extra special. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, so that was... Yeah, and then at some point I found out... Because they used to do, like, members' nights of, like, behind-the-scenes tours at the aquarium and stuff. And so my parents, like, sort of were super encouraging of my interests and um, definitely did, like, the girl guide sleepovers and stuff. And then found out that once you turned 14, you could volunteer. And so I did. And that's... Yeah. And then next question. <laughs> Nicole, what about you? Um, so I'm a prairie girl, born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, until I was about four and a half, I think, uh, unicorns were the greatest thing in the world to me, as they were for probably most other girls that age. And some boys, you know, no judgment. Unicorns are awesome. And then my parents brought me to Vancouver to visit my aunt that summer and really similar to you Sarah what you do when you live in Vancouver and you have family visiting especially young family is you bring them to the aquarium so my aunt brought my parents and I to the Vancouver Aquarium and the way that I remember it is uh, there were still killer whales there at that time and I saw a killer whale and that was it I don't really remember the rest of I mean, I actually don't really remember the rest of my life aside from that moment. <laughs> um, but the way that my mom tells the story is that I saw a killer whale for the first time and then was an insufferable brat because... <laughs> <laughs> love you mom uh she uses nicer words than that but i'm paraphrasing because what i apparently did was be an insufferable brat and i refused to go and see the rest of the aquarium when my parents wanted to go and see and oh so innocent x number of years ago to give away my age uh they just left me in front of the when <laughs> i was four and a half years old and they just let me hang out there because I refused to leave and see anything other than the killer whales. And they would come back and check on me periodically, or so they say. And, <laughs> and I was just still there. I was mesmerized by this animal. Like I, I still get chills thinking about it, and it's why killer whales are so important to me. But then the real, real mistake my aunt made in this situation was we were visiting for, I think, a week and a half, and she brought us to the aquarium on day two of our visit. And by the time we went back home to Winnipeg, we had a family membership to the aquarium, despite not living in Vancouver, because we had gone almost every day. And I did eventually see the rest of the aquarium on that trip, but I don't remember it. I just remember falling in love with killer whales. And we had probably every stuffed animal from the gift shop. <laughs> Because I'm an only child and I was spoiled. I love you, mom and dad. <laughs> and that's really, I mean, it was a formative moment for me, for sure. I, from that moment on, never wanted to do anything else other than, well, first I wanted to be a killer whale. Of course. Because <laughs> you were four and a half. Exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, I still haven't totally given up on that dream. But when I realized that was going to be really, really hard, slash maybe impossible I was like okay well second best thing I'll be a marine biologist and that was you could go back to every single craft or like book report or whatever any school project that I was asked what are you gonna do when you grow up be a marine biologist and I am sure that probably every teacher every family friend 
some family as well. Like, yeah, of course you are, sweetheart. Sure, you go live that dream. And, well, here we are. <laughs> Living the dream in our homes right now. So, I'm not to take away from how serious this four and a half year old's dream was, but when did you guys know that it was for realsies? Um, when did you know you wanted to do it? What did you study? So I went through a lot of different things that I wanted to do growing up. Like it wasn't always, always marine biology. There was, I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a vet. <laughs> I wanted to be a vet a lot. And then I realized that vets mostly looked after cats and dogs. Um, and, and then with volunteering and stuff, then I sort of started meeting people who were a bit older than me or were already in university and learning what they were doing or what they had done, um, like the volunteer coordinators and the other like staff that I got to volunteer with. Um, and uh, being lucky enough that the local university, uh, the University of British Columbia, um, no idea if they still do, but you, it, when you majored in biology, you could also pick a concentration and one of the concentrations was marine biology. And then I was like, oh, okay, well then I'll just do that, great. Um, I didn't actually end up finishing with the concentration in marine biology, but that doesn't really matter for the purposes of this conversation. Um, I still majored in biology. I did a ton of marine biology stuff. Um, and the whole way through, I just assumed like I would do an undergrad and then I would get a master's and I would be a marine biologist researcher. And then I realized that I didn't actually like doing like the, the hands-on-y research and the pa writing papers and doing um, like all that academic stuff. Um, but I didn't realize that until fourth year, so I finished anyways, and then, yeah. And that's, that's how I studied marine biology. <laughs> In a very similar vein to you, Sarah, I, well, I remember being kind of heartbroken when I was in high school, and I came out, I think the summer between grade 11 and 12, I did, because I'm a giant nerd, as all three of us are, and probably many of you listening to this podcast, yay, nerds! we there was a summer school extra credit course that you could take at Lester B Pearson College on Vancouver Island that not only was sort of an extra high school credit in marine biology but also got you your open water scuba certification through Patty so my dad found this for me and i begged and pleaded for my parents to send me and it basically meant i spent the entire summer between grade 11 and 12 away from Manitoba because I was still living there at the time and just, you know, living the actual dream, seeing killer whales off the dock of the college where we were studying and scuba diving first time and, and just studying marine biology all summer. And I hope that that program still exists. It's called Ocean Educations. If anybody wants to look it up, I should have looked it up before we were recording tonight, but it's such an amazing experience and I really really hope it's still going and I did have a bit of a devastating experience though over the summer because that's when I learned that there is no such job as being a marine biologist <laughs> there are many 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 facets to being a marine biologist and I was going to have to actually narrow it down instead of just answering generically when people would ask what do you want to do I'm a marine biologist so obviously since killer whales were sort of what had sparked this up for me I decided well I'm obviously going to be a world-renowned killer whale researcher and similar to you Sarah I applied to university I did two years at the University of Manitoba and then transferred over to Simon Fraser University here in Van well here in British Columbia 
and was studied with the whole goal being to study marine biology through a technical biology degree with just kind of specialization in marine biology. And uh, at university is where I met Calculus, my nemesis, and I also realized that just like you, Sarah, I didn't actually like pretty much most of the whole being a researcher deal. And I failed calculus something like seven or eight times in university. So I also wasn't really cut out to be a marine biologist by education. So I am a marine biologist by trade and I have a psychology degree, which side note took me about 12 years to get, but I did get it. And what that tells you kids is that you can still follow your dreams, even if you have to take calculus. I will also say that calculus is not what you need to be a marine biologist. It's just what the university thinks you need. To yes, be a correct. Biologist. And also any any kind of science, mm-hmm. you need to take calculus. But after my second year of university, I haven't used calculus since. Yep. So you know. <laughs> yeah. So while all of that was going on, and I was kind of having a crisis of a life crisis while at university, I was volunteering for the Vancouver Crime. Once I moved out here, it was my very, very first phone call I made when I was moving into my new apartment before I called the bank or, you know, back at the day, Blockbuster to change where my Blockbuster service was signed up, which totally dates me. I called the aquarium and said, I live here now. Can I volunteer? Because I had tried to volunteer for the aquarium like while still living in Winnipeg <laughs> and being like, I'm going to come out and visit my aunt and live in BC for three weeks. Can I volunteer? Like, uh, no, it doesn't really work that way. So I was like, I live here now. Can I volunteer? And so I started volunteering with like five different departments because I just wanted to do everything and get to know everybody. And one of the things I was doing was volunteering for the interpretation department, which are naturalists or environmental educators that work with the public at the aquarium. And that's where I really discovered that what I actually loved doing was sharing stories, just like what we do at Whale Tales, with people about amazing marine animals, whales and dolphins and porpoises included, and sparking passion for for marine life in other people. So that was where life took me in the professional sense, was through interpretation, mostly with a marine biology spin. So, you know, just to beat the drum one more time, I also started volunteering at the aquarium when I was 16. Um, I had just quit swimming and then I didn't know what to do with myself, so I spent a year um, watching Wonder Years with my sister after school and don't knock Wonder Years it's awesome but at that point my mom was like you need to do something <laughs> so <laughs> I think she probably kicked herself after that because then I was like okay I'm gonna start volunteering at a place that's an hour and a half bus ride away can I go there all the time um uh, <laughs> so yeah so I started volunteering with them um and I was doing that I also took a week-long course in grade 12 at Banfield Marine Science Center, which was a really big deal because it was just like, first of all, you were 18 and you were alone on uh, with just science and a bunch of science nerds. Like, I don't, like, it's not, this isn't a college movie party. Um, this was a bunch of science nerds. Like, let's see how long we can keep our hands on the touch table for. <laughs> like, that's what we did. I've still so played that game. <laughs> so, <laughs> We've all played that game. <laughs> Exactly. Um, So that kind of stuff. And then uh, after high school, I went to SFU to do 
a degree in biology um, with a concentration on marine biology similar to Sarah. Um, and I kind of got a marine biology ecology degree there. I also I was able to take two full courses at Banfield during that, um, biology of fishes and biology of marine mammals, which were huge, huge points in my life and like shaped parts of my life really strongly and was a really big deal for me. Um, and then after I graduated, Sarah and I went to Australia and I did some uh, research assistant stuff there with mar for marine biology and it was kind of like around then I got home, it was the recession, so nobody was, you couldn't do a master's unless you didn't have like insane NSERC grades, which is a grant uh, in Canada for doing science research. Um, and so nobody was taking me because I didn't have the grades to get that kind of funding. So at that point, I just kind of needed to find a job. And so I worked at various places, some biology related, some chemistry related, and then we kind of ended up here. Okay. So what even is a marine biologist? I mean, we've all sort of talked about how we wanted to be marine biologists, but then through our education and experiences discovered that there's not like one job that is a marine biologist. There's probably hundreds or thousands of different kinds of jobs and being a marine biologist, whether like through education or through what you do at work is really different. So I figured we would talk a little bit about some of our like most, our most memorable or favorite, those don't always overlap, um, professional experiences of working or being a marine biologist, however you want to define that. So Nick, do you want to go first? Sure. So while I was still sort of trying to force myself to finish my biology degree, despite not being able to pass calculus and not really being ready to admit that I wasn't going to be a researcher, because that's somehow what I had always quote unquote wanted to be, even though I didn't know that that's what I actually wanted to be because uh, I didn't really know what was involved in being a researcher. It just sounded really cool, and I thought it meant that I could be on a boat all day watching killer whales. I was really floundering, obviously, sort of the undercurrent of this my school situation. I was really floundering at school, and the I was volunteering at the aquarium and loving that. And through a friend and still storyteller of ours at Whale Tales, Caitlin Birdsall, who worked at the aquarium with me at the time, I found the opportunity to go to Australia as a volunteer research assistant, which there's lots and lots of these opportunities around the world in pretty much any kind of biology or ecology research where you pay for your flight and you pay for your food and you pay for your accommodation and you work for free and you're somehow beyond happy to do it. <laughs> beyond happy. It's still one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. I was in a tiny, tiny town in Western Australia called Bunbury working with bottlenose dolphins and so the researchers in the area were specifically studying the dietary habits of that population of bottlenose dolphin and so what my day consisted of for two months was starting my day on a boat in beautiful always sunny western australia heading out maybe half an hour maybe an hour offshore laying some fish traps uh, not non-kill fish traps in the water to soak as we called it which basically just meant lowering the traps kind of think crab trap into the water baited sometimes not baited other times and then we would 
hang out on the boat for four hours while the traps soaked. So it really was living the dream. And sometimes there were dolphins around because obviously when you're trying to study the diet of a species, you want to make sure you're in the area where that species is. And so there are a couple of stories on whale tales from my experience in Bunbury. And it's just amazing. I still think back on that, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories is that one of the researchers, I hope she's okay with me telling this story on here now because it's a little bit easier to track her it was. Um, she was pregnant at the time, but she was only, she had only really just realized that she was pregnant herself and she hadn't really told anybody. And we ended up being in the water with a small pot of balanos in the area and they completely changed course and came over and there was a, a quite a young animal in the in the family group and a few of the older animals took turns coming up and echolocating on the researcher's belly because they could tell she was pregnant and the older animals would kind of go back to the younger animal in the group and then bring the younger animal over until finally the younger animal was echolocating and all of us were just like this is not happening this is ridiculous this is totally um, and then when we got back up on the boat, she obviously had not told myself and the other research assistant because she didn't, she'd only known us for a couple of days and yeah. we were going to disappear back to our various countries in a few weeks. And then we were like, so what's happening? Are you okay? And she's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really, really, really special way to tell people you're pregnant. Yep. Um, yep. It's a, a bit of an extra birth announcement. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But like that, it, that kind of just magical, really, truly magical moments with those dolphins. And that's something that I'll always be grateful for. And again, why, why you're always so grateful to do those kind of volunteer experiences. Like, yes, you have to pay a lot of money to do that. And you have to be lucky enough to have the ability to take a couple of months off of work slash school and, and do it. But so worth it. And then the other moment you know I've had so all three of us were so lucky to have had so many special experiences I worked for almost eight years as a part-time whale watch naturalist here in BC I saw so many incredible encounters out on the water we live in such a beautiful place and I'm missing being on the water so so much but there is really and truly as sentimental as it is nothing more special to me in my professional life and even in a lot of my personal life than the first day I got to put on a red jacket which meant I was a staff member at the Vancouver Aquarium because that's where my whole love for marine life started with seeing that killer whale for the first time after volunteering for about a year and a half when I had the opportunity to become a staff member there and eventually I spent almost 12 years at the aquarium eventually became the manager of their interpretive department which again was kind of a full circle moment for me because that's when I realized that's what I really wanted to do with my life but that first day when I signed the paperwork and I got to put on that red jacket I still get a little emotional about it it's still a really 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 dreams come true moment I was gonna say you obviously have that feeling when you put a red jacket on because you were working um in your what you yeah. didn't know yet was to be your dream job. I put a red jacket on for the first time when I worked for eight years at the cafe. So the red jacket feeling kind of goes away when it smells like fries. Yep, um, but anyway, so that's not really one of my most memorable experiences as a marine biologist. 
Um, but as I said, I did two courses in Banfield, and if it's that's something that you're in, if you're interested in doing any kind of biology, coastal ecology, even some um, plant stuff, I think some of the like, stuff they yeah, do, yeah, like I forest ecology kind of stuff. Forest ecology, inverts, birds, they mm-hmm. do a course on. It's so. Um, like it's immeasurable the amount of stuff that you learn it's marine biology boot camp you're only doing marine biology all the time and then also uh partaking in adult beverages which is perfectly legal so it's fine um and having the time of life like i went to Banfield, i did my biology of business course almost 15 years ago to the day and up until three weeks ago, when the world exploded, we were going to go to Banfield at the end of May and have our 15-year reunion. So, <sighs> so cute. Feelings. Yeah. Um, feelings. Um, but in Australia, I also did some really amazing research things. I got room and board, so I don't know what's wrong with Nicole's <laughs> research assistant <laughs> job. But both mine were room and board. I did one on the East Coast. Counting humpbacks while they migrated. I miss Maybelline by three days and we'll never get over that. Um, but on the West Coast, I was there for four months doing research in Shark Bay, which was about the ecology of the bay because it's a really great ecosystem with top-down predators with tiger sharks and dugongs and uh, rays and turtles and all sorts of awesome things. So we did a lot of literally David Hasselhoff diving off of the boat to tag uh, turtles. We did some shark fishing. Um, and it was just like almost every day you were on the boat, you got a really good tan. You, um, were, there were dolphins bow riding, leaping over, uh, rainbows. It was literally everything you thought marine biology was going to be, except for the days that were super windy. And the fact that you were living off of peanut butter and jam sandwiches, but on white bread, (laughs) eaten on a boat. So they were hot and the bread was just like soaked through with jam and, (laughs) Making it sound so glamorous, Lindsay. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So this is the thing. Even when it's glamorous, you're like, there's pictures of me from that um, time where you're like wearing, you know, you got your baseball hat and your sunglasses and your rashy and your shorts and your super tan and you're like leaning on a boat or you're in the water. There's dolphins and everything's so great. <laughs> but then there's also like the seven days where you can't go out and you're scraping slime off of seagrass in a trailer <laughs> and it's 106 degrees. And you're with the same seven people that you've been with for four months. And there's there's good parts and there's bad parts of yeah. all research. And that's something I could tell you about this stuff for days, but you never would really experience it. And I think it's something that you have to experience as a student, as a research assistant, before you go into a master's or a PhD, before you make your career decision. you got to know what you're getting into. Yes, totally. totally. Moral well, of we'll the get, story. We'll get to advice later. <laughs> yeah, yeah we will. But that's... <laughs> Um, definitely one of my memorable experiences of, like, with, um, shark fishing, we would go out at, like, four in the morning before the sun rose, set the traps, we would drink coffee in a thermos that tasted like salt, um, because <laughs> we were on a boat, and then we'd come back and eat pancakes, and then go back out and, and look at the sharks, so that was definitely the best part, because you knew you got to get pancakes. <laughs> um, so. Good times. That was good. Good times. Um, yeah, for me, um, probably my, so my first biology related job was with the aquarium and it was, um, doing, uh, they had like a, or they still have it. It's an outreach program that you pack up a big truck and it's full of 
live invertebrates mostly like intertidal stuff like um sea stars and um, urchins and crabs and some small fish and some other stuff and lots of props and you go inland basically or go to communities that don't have access to the aquarium and you deliver aquarium programming off-site um so i did that we went to mostly alberta um for my contract and it was so cool because i was like I mean, I, at that point, I'd been working at the aquarium for a few years. I'd worked there all through undergrad um, in food and beverage. So yeah, like Lindsay said, getting to be staff, like it was exciting, but it wasn't that exciting. And by the time I got through university, it was pretty, it had worn off. Um, yeah, so I did this aquavan thing. And then doing that, like I loved the biology part, but what I really, really liked was the informal education side of things because um, we would deliver school programs to all ages, mostly little kids. Um, and from that, I sort of kept looking for biology jobs, but really um, ended up um, working for a long time uh, doing other informal education stuff, um, school programs and um, public presentations of all, all science related mostly. Um, and then after doing some traveling, like Lindsay, I went to Australia. I didn't really do much like marine biology there other than just sort of living on an island. Um, <laughs> but we don't need to get into that. Um, but then when I got back, I um, eventually found a job working as an animal care biologist at, back at the aquarium. But um, really at that point, I was, I was just so excited to get to say that like I was working as a like an actual biologist. Like my career was in biology. I got to do biology stuff every day. And it was just really great. Um, yeah, like obviously it it was a job and it, it's not definitely not a dream job. And there was like great parts and not great parts about it. But it just getting like it because it took me a long time. Like that was I don't know. I feel like it was like, yeah, so it was like five years after I finished my undergraduate that I actually like other than that a brief stint with the Aquavan um, when like my my job title was biologist. Like it took a long time and I was really proud of that. So um yeah, the fact that I, I stuck it out and I got like an actual biology job. Um, and, you know, now I don't. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, but really what I got from that was both meeting these guys, um, which like I can't imagine my life without them. Oh. But also what I got out of it was that like what I really like doing is figuring out ways to like communicate about the world around us to people and help them understand the world around them. And that's what I really love doing. And that's why I love biology. That's why I love whales. Um, yeah, that's even why I love what I do now, which is like, I work as a software developer, but like, it's all about communicating the world around you. So that's my professional favorite stuff. Aww. So we've sort of touched on it a little bit in all of our various stories, but we want it. We, we know in our pilot episode of this podcast, we talked a little bit about where the idea for whale tales came from. But we haven't really told the story of us and how the three of us got together to become the crazy life wives, as we call ourselves, that we are. And Lindsay, as the keeper of our dates and the one who probably, no offense, Sarah, I think you would agree with me on this, has the best memory of the three of us yeah. <laughs> by far. Plus, it is also worth pointing out, Lindsay is the reason that Sarah and I actually really got to know each other well, because Lindsay yes. is kind of the, the crux point, or the keystone, as it were, for bringing us all together. Lindsay, can you tell our listeners the story of us? Um, so, as if you've been keeping track and doing some napkin math, um, Sarah and I um, both started volunteering when we were really young, but our paths didn't cross until we both... Sarah had already been working there until I got a job at the cafe 
uh, right after I graduated, which was only like three years ago. Yep. Uh, <laughs> or 2002. Let's just face the music. We are where we are. Yep. Um, just playing right down the middle, millennials. Um, so at that point we started working together and that was good because we were both kind of on the same wavelength of work is important, even if it's serving ice cream for $17 for whatever it is. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that was that for many years. In 2007, we went to Australia together, even though like we flew together and did some stuff and then we went on separate ways and then we came back and cleaned hostel toilets for three months together, which is the thing that everybody who's 23 should do. I don't, I don't know. know. It, it was a bonding <laughs> and personal development moment. Exactly. Um, and then we came back and I started working at the, at the aquarium again. And I kind of, Nicole was there, but I didn't really know her, but I was also like in the basement. Nobody really knew that I was there kind of, um, just working away with, Elbow deep in herring, as I often am. Um, it's true, and elbow deep in some kind of fish. <laughs> some kind of fish, some kind of fish gonads. This is basically the story of my life. Um, and then, right before Nicole left for Australia, she came and asked us about. No, it wasn't after. It was when Nicole was in Australia for stories that we're not going to get into right now. Um, I got some frantic messages about where to stay in Sydney. <laughs> because she knew that I had been in Australia recently. Um, so then she brought me Tim Tams home and we kind of bonded and then we kind of became like insane best friends and like probably in like an ob- obnoxious way to other people around us because we just like dropped everything. <laughs> <laughs> just became best friends. Um, in the meantime, Sarah had started working there again. So I saw her a lot, but again, I was still in the basement and Sarah was far away on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were very, it was very Romeo and Juliet because marine mammal people do not interact with Aquarist people. Oh yeah. It's no. Just a scandal. Um, whenever she was down there, people were like, what the hell? Yeah. How do you know like, who she is? How do you know? And people on my team were like, how do you know somebody in the marine mammal department? And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Why do you guys care so much? <laughs> it was very odd. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so in August 2009, um, we all went for drinks. Some, I don't know why, we just did. Whatever. I think you'd been telling me that I would get along with Nicole, and I had met Nicole, like, yes. at work, but it was like, because we, we all worked, worked in the same building, point. and like, she would come and do public programs w- with the animals that I looked after, or like, we would cross paths and like I knew that Nicole had been to Australia and I was like oh that's cool I was in Australia blah 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 but like <laughs> never you really on a boat? I'm on a boat yeah like other exactly. than like oh okay whatever that's fun let me go back to scrubbing and feeding um, <laughs> and I'll go back to talking to people yeah um and then yeah so Lindsay I knew like was friends with Nicole but it we just had never hung out other than running into each other at work and then yeah we all went out and then yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, Lindsay was right. <laughs> that is the story. Yeah. We, that was that. It's been 11 years. And um, at some point, we were given the the, nom- the name of Life Lives for Life. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been it. We've kind of done everything together since. Once in 2011, we went on an 11-day road trip in a uh, golf with no air conditioning to San Diego from Vancouver. Yeah. And if you can get through that, you can get through anything. Yeah, like we've, Correct. we've gone on some crazy adventures together. Um, we've told you about some of them, like our Monterey trip. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our second 
second California trip. Yeah, our second trip where to we California. Flew yeah. to California. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Not that we didn't love each other, but we had less time. We've done it once. Yes. We didn't We've done need it once. to do really it again. Only... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had many, many wonderful adventures since, including the best trip ever, which I think we have also talked a little bit about. I don't think we have because it, we there didn't. Was no yeah, cetaceans. we didn't see any cetaceans. We but didn't. We we went to the Galapagos at some point that Lindsay will tell me. Twenty twelve. Yeah. So yeah. So we've we've done a lot of traveling together. We've like been there for each other through lots of life stuff and career stuff and personal stuff and whatever and all this whale tail stuff. It's been so great to get to all work together. Yeah. Yeah. A moment that I probably shouldn't admit to on this podcast, but I'm going to because it really cements how important these two ladies are in my life. These two were the first people to hold my newborn son, other than doctors and his father so they got to hold my son before any of the grandparents did which i don't think any of them know and i'm so glad that we do this together yeah it is great to get to like get to catch up and then also have to catch up and work on uh, work on something together (sighs) feelings well we also work the same yes we're very um focused and we're all workaholics Mm -hmm. And so that helps when you go into business with somebody. True. Um, true, true. So, yeah. Um, nose boops to all of you, because that's what we do when we have yep. feelings. Boop. Boop. Feelings. <laughs> so to bring it all home a little bit for our listeners, because especially if you are the kind of listener who you might still be in school, whether that's grade school or university, and you think you want to be a marine biologist, but now potentially your mind has also been blown to learn that that's not a real job, but there's lots of different facets of that job. What advice do you ladies have for other cetacean lovers out there who want to become marine biologists, whatever that means to them? Yeah, so I touched on this before, but field courses and um, if you can, doing research assistant jobs. Like even um, in my last semester at SFU, I was doing cleaning sea star tanks for a grad student and it was boring. And, but I really liked it because it was just me and uh, a job and I got to listen to my iPod because it was 2006. Um, and so I didn't care and it was sea stars and there was muscles and I got, there was lots of fun in there, but it's, that's the reality. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of dirty work. There's a lot of times where you will be wet. There's a lot of smelly stuff. There's a lot of dead fish in your future, regardless (laughs) of what track you want your marine biology place to go there will be dead fish um and so i think that that's really important to do open your eyes to the actual experiences talk to everybody that you can about what their life is like because not having a lot of money having to deal with funding having to deal with um your uh professors and your um whatchamacallit phd group of professors advisors that called advisors and um all of those things like it can be a really stressful experience and it can last for a really long time this can be your entire life and then you can also never leave school you just get a postdoc and (laughs) stuff and like and then you got to look at what you want to do like is there a purpose to getting a phd and like all of these kinds of things um so just like having the image in your mind of being on a boat surrounded by dolphins is great and fun and is definitely something I recommend, but you have to decide on what you want mm-hmm. to actually do with your life because at some point you got to make some money. 
Um, so that volunteering is a great way to get started and to network and all that stuff. And then the biggest thing that people don't really think about, we talked about calculus, but stats mm-hmm. is a huge part of biology. Yeah. All yeah. biology. Stats is insane. It's not actually super hard to learn, but you got to know it before you write, do any research at all. Yeah. Otherwise, you're literally crying in a computer lab at midnight. <laughs> That's just the way that it's going to be. Yeah. Um, so if you are afraid of math, um, yeah, so mine's kind of similar to Lindsay's, but it's a little bit different because it's basically like talk to people who are doing jobs that you think are cool and talk to them about not like talk to them about how they got there, but like everybody's path is so crazy and so different and there's so many ways to get into the same kind of field, but talk to them about actually like the skills that they need and the tasks and like the work that they do every day. Cause like, it's super great. Like, oh, I do research on like this amazing cool dolphin and their behavior, but like what what do you actually do on a day-to-day basis? Because at least for me, that has been really the thing that, like, has... That matters more to me than what I'm actually, Mm -hmm. like, doing with those skills and tasks. I mean, obviously, I want them to be doing something good. I don't want to be, you know, like, researching for evil. But, um, like, what what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis has really, um, in my many careers, like, been the thing that matters the most to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is, and like, this is, if I was thinking like, what advice, if I could try and time travel back to me in like first year university, what would I tell myself? And I would be take a computer science course. Mm. Yes. Like actual like coding doesn't even, not even necessarily like computer science, but like learn to do some programming because you never know like how it would overlap with what you're studying. Um, and I think like, I don't wish to change my change things but I think if I'd figured out that I like programming and biology I would have done something completely different um rather than doing biology and then programming uh for me I think so since my life experience has been so strange in terms of school in particular and yet I would still say I am and was for a very long time a marine biologist and I don't have a biology degree I think my, my advice is even maybe a little bit different than Lindsay and Sarah's in that, like, if you really, really love the ocean, if you really, really love cetaceans and maybe it's not even just that math isn't working for you. Like it wasn't working for me, but maybe just school isn't working for you, which is completely okay. And it's hard. The biggest takeaway I've had from my professional life is that if you want something badly enough, you can find a road there. It's going to be the road less traveled. It's going to be the road you probably have to forge on your own. But I didn't think it was possible to be a marine biologist without a biology degree. And yet that's what I spent a significant portion of my professional life doing. But it was just more on the artsy side of marine biology rather than the sciencey side, the artsy side being communication being education like educating the public about marine biology and I got there really because I was driven to do it I volunteered I put in the work I got to know the right people like so many other things in life getting the job that you want is about knowing the right people it always is so pick up a phone or send an email to the person who's doing the thing that you want to be doing most people who really love their jobs like talking about their jobs to other people so 
it's a great way for you to make a new connection, but it's also a really, really great foot in the door for you to potentially get sort of a starter job in that world. For example, my first, that red jacket moment for me at the aquarium was because the manager of the interpretive delivery department at the time needed someone very, very last minute to do a spring break interp job. And I had been talking to him because I really, really loved what the interp team did. And I was volunteering for that department and I would go out of my way to get to know all of the other staff, even though I didn't necessarily need to do that as a volunteer. So when he was in a really tight spot two days before spring break and a staff member who had been hired pulled out last minute, he came to me on my shift as a volunteer and said, hey, I know you, you seem like a decent human being. I'm really, really strapped. You seem good as a volunteer. Would you like to come and work? And then I just never left the department and ended up managing the department. And, you know, a moment I've gone and I've spoken at universities and I've gone and I've spoken at high schools to grade 12 classes about career planning. I got the job as the manager of the interpretive delivery department at Vancouver Graham without having a university degree yet at that point in my life. So if you are driven enough to want something, if you want it badly enough, you'll find your way there. And the other big takeaway I have is because there is no such one job as being a marine biologist, if you're really great at photography, go do that and and be a National Geographic photographer of cetaceans. If you are an artist, you know, a good friend of the show of ours and a friend of all three of ours, Lisa Joan, I suppose she goes by as an artist name, she paints stunning pictures, stunning, stunning, stunning art of all kinds of whales and other wildlife in BC. So you can find a job basically as a marine biologist doing whatever you're good at if you love it enough. Like what we did with whale tape. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we wanted to take a moment at that point actually just to say thank you especially to our patrons who are helping to make it possible for the three of us to do this, to do this podcast, to run Whale Tales. If you don't know what Patreon is, it is an amazing website where you can go and support creators, whether they be artists or podcasters like us or really anyone who's making anything. And your support, even if it's as little as a dollar a month, really goes a very, very long way to making our dreams come true because we couldn't do this podcast without you. So we are extremely thankful to our patrons. If you are considering being a patron, if you like what we do at Whale Tales, if you like this podcast, we have just launched three new tiers of Patreon subscribers or, or being a patron. You can be a porpoise patron, a dolphin patron, or a whale patron. And there are different perks for each of those different levels getting bigger. The perks get bigger, the bigger the animal gets. So even though, yes, there are some dolphins that are bigger than some whales, we're going with the generics there. And really anything that you could do to help us out would be so, so appreciated. And if you, because we completely understand that people's financial situations are changing day to day these days, as we are all living through COVID-19 together, and we 
very, very much understand that that might not be possible for you. So if any kind of financial support for our podcast isn't something that you can do at this time, if you do have the opportunity to go on to iTunes and leave us a rating and leave us your comments and maybe give us five stars, we would really appreciate that too because that helps other people find us. So thank you so much to our existing patrons and thank you really to everybody who listens. We love having you here. Now it's time to switch gears and switch voices because it's time for fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact, fun flipper fact with Ben down under. So now we're going to head to my recording with Ben from February. Um, he is, this is Ben Francis Shelley or something similar to that. He pronounces his name properly in the recording, um, who is a paleontologist in Melbourne. He's a vertebrate paleontologist working uh, with a bunch of different Things leading explorations in fossil sites in Bayside, um, Victoria, or Bayside, Australia. I don't really know how that works. Um, and we had a fantastic conversation, which I loved, and I'm super excited to share with you guys now. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before telling us your fun facts? Yeah, so I'm a paleontologist, and I'm based in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. My job is basically to go out in the field find specimens of scientific interest, usually whales and sharks, bring them back to the lab, prepare them mechanically and chemically, and then I collaborate with other researchers to try and figure out exactly what they are. So what is one of the coolest things you've found, maybe? One of the coolest things I find? Oh, boy. Um, there's a lot of things, I must admit. Uh, there's something different every single week. And I think the really beautiful thing about the job that I get to do is not just collaborating with members of the public who find things, but having to have a really broad and general knowledge on everything as well. Because I mean, there's whales, which are fantastic, as you might expect. And you have to learn almost every single aspect of their internal anatomy to understand what some of the bones look like. Um, but, you know, occasionally some people find bones of the largest flying bird that ever took to the sky, the Pelicanithus. That's really rad. Yeah, with a wingspan roughly six to seven meters in length, they would they basically have a wingspan the height of a giraffe. And... Uh, yeah, they were terrifying animals with these pseudo beaks of like uh, that looked like teeth, but weren't technically teeth at all. Um, but in terms of whales, like the uh, the my favorite part to find in the fossil record are any ear bones because they're hugely diagnostic. And so when I find one, I'm like, yes, I can tell exactly what this animal was doing 23 million years ago. Fantastic. And uh, when I find one of those, that's usually a standout thing. But recently, uh, probably one of the most amazing finds that was made. Uh, it's an area called Bayside. It dates back to five to six million years ago. Um, I was snorkeling in about two meters of water. And then I saw this kind of dense contortion of bones sticking out of the bottom, just, the, just on the sand itself, just rolling around. And I went down to go pick it up. And it happened to be a tooth from a killer sperm whale that lived at that time in the, uh, in the early Pliocene period. Killer sperm whales are really unique because they're very, very different from the modern varieties today. They had dentition not just on the lower jaws but also on the upper jaws interlocking and uh, they were thought to be some of the biggest predators that had ever existed uh, rivaling that of the megalodon when they were alive so you talk about ears can you talk a little bit about what kind of stuff you um, look at in the ear bone for diagnostics is it for aging or even just species identification yeah it comes down to species identification so when you're looking at these contortions i think the <laughs> A colleague of mine looked at one that I collected recently and said, geez, this looks like a bunch of molted, melted Maltesers more than anything else. It just, it doesn't look like anything, but inside you've got the swirls of the cochlea 
and every single swirl is slightly different depending on the species as well. So, um, and when it comes to baleen whales, you know, the ones with the huge keratinous racks and the upper jaws and everything, um, mm-hmm. there's a massive, if you make two fists side by side, the largest ear bones from a blue whale are roughly that big. They are huge. Whoa. Um, and so when you find one of those, you're like, it's unmistakable what you're finding. You know that it's a baleen whale. And surprisingly, yeah. the toothed whale ear bones are much, much smaller in comparison. So it's it's always a treat to find one, I can tell you now. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some, I don't know, evolution or something that you can have found when you look at the anatomy of uh, prehistoric whales to whales now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was younger, I, I got told this fact when I was in year eight, so I would have been about 12 years old at the time. And the teacher just basically said, Ben, did you know that whales walked on land 50 million years ago? And I said, what? That's unbelievable. I, I could not believe him for the longest time. And, and then sure enough, I read some books and I was like, this is, this is really amazing. And, uh, when you start to think about it, it, it really does boggle the mind because this is an animal that is obligately aquatic. This is an animal that has adapted to the marine realm so incredibly well. There was one U.S. paleontologist, uh, George Gaylord Simpson, uh, in 1945, I think he wrote something along the lines of, because of their perfected adaptation to a completely aquatic life, their place in the sequence of their ancestry is open to question. And is almost impossible to determine in any objective way. He saw them as the most aberrant and strangest of mammals. And I mean, when you look at something like a modern sperm whale, they are really weird. This is an animal that gets to 20 meters in length, weighs 50 metric tons, holds its breath for more than an hour and dives a kilometer below the surface of the water in search of prey that is the size of a school bus every single day. That is just whack stuff. And then, of course, you look at something like a blue whale, the largest animal that has ever existed in the history of the world. I mean, this is something twice the size of any of the long-necked dinosaurs, the sauropods. They're getting to something like 180 to 200 metric tons, uh, the same as 30 African elephants stacked on top of each other. It'd be a delicate balancing act. I couldn't even imagine seeing that, of course. But the sheer statistics alone for that animal, I mean... If you, any of your listeners have ever run down a basketball court, that's the same length as a, as a blue whale, 30 meters long, you know. Um, and the sheer statistics alone for this creature are just completely mind-boggling. They have the largest single continuous bone structure ever found in the animal kingdom. Their lower jaw is more than six meters in length. Um, when they feed, um, they eat tiny little creatures called krill. You already know this, of course, but just in case your viewers don't. Um, uh, that are roughly the same size as your thumb, but they'll eat two to four metric tons of krill every single day. And But for me, one of the most fantastic facts about blue whales is that when they're born, the two metric tons of weight, they're seven meters long, and they'll suckle 350 liters of milk every single day until they wean themselves. So it makes a lot of sense that a lot of paleontologists would look at the modern fauna and go just, what the hell is going on here? How did these animals ever walk on land? But incredibly, you look at the blue whale, you look at the sperm whale, you look at all modern oceanic dolphins today, you look at orcas or killer whales, you know, that they're animals that can t- technically take down a blue whale in a pod. You look at beaked whales, the deepest diving mammals on the planet, they hold their breath for more than two hours and have some of the deepest dives of any animal in the, on the planet. You look at river dolphins and porpoises, they all have one single common ancestor that lived 50 million years ago on the edge of the, Him- the newly emerging Himalayas. 
And uh, just the sheer thought of that animal is quite astounding. But thanks to the fossil record, we know exactly what this animal looks like. And it is super weird. So should we travel back into the past right now? Yeah, let's do it. We'll travel back to the early Eocene 50 million years ago. So there you are, okay? The oxygen levels are a lot higher today. The Himalayas are just starting to thrust out of the, uh, the Asian plate itself. The dinosaurs have died for more than 15 million years. They're just faint whispers preserved in stone. And you're currently walking over a bunch of cobbled stones yourself with babbling water flowing nearby. And at the edge of the stream, there's a bizarre animal. It's got four legs. It walks closer and closer to you. It's got a furry coat and it looks like a mix between an otter and a Labrador. What you are looking at is Pachycetus, the walking whale of Indo-Pakistan, the ancestor of every single one of those animals we described earlier. We're talking about the ancestor of the blue whale and the sperm whale and how absolutely aberrant it looks like. And you'd look at this animal and you go, how on earth is this a whale? How's an animal that walks on land with four legs and a furry coat a whale? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but what we see in the fossil record are these set of incredible transitional fossils that demonstrate to us exactly how they went back into the water. They lost their hind legs. Of course, they still have vestigial hind limbs so that they can anchor their penis around. Um, so they are still not technically vestigial in the strictest sense. They telescope their face out, they stretch it out. Their nose goes from the tip of their face to the middle of their head to become a blowhole. They lose their fur and instead adapt to blubber as the method and means of insulation. And in a really short amount of evolutionary time, a really short amount, just less than eight to 10 million years, we have a form known as Basilosaurus. It's a really sexy name. And uh, it's found in the middle of the Sahara Desert, mind you. It's 18 meters in length. There's no doubt that it's a whale. It's got tiny little hind limbs in the back part. It clearly has a fluke at the end of its tail that can propel its forward. And it's a predator and quite possibly one of the biggest predators the world had seen up until that point in the latest Eocene, some 34 million years ago. So for me, it's so astounding that just less than 50, 60, 70 years ago, we had no idea what these animals would have looked like in their prehistory. But by going into the past, by looking at certain different varieties and, and going out and digging for the answers of, this, of these animals, we now have a much better understanding of their entire evolution and of evolution itself and how things like natural selection work. And I think the best thing about it is that there are more intermediate forms found every single year that just fill out more and more of that picture. Like just last year, Peregocetus was found uh, in South America. It's a 42 million year old walking whale and it, and it has back limbs and probably would have been able to haul itself on land at some point. But you know, that was just last year. So who knows what the next couple of years are gonna hold for us. Awesome. So cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. So cool, yeah. Um, and now, because we had Ben on the phone, we figured we'd also get one of Ben's awesome whale tales. So this is a whale tale that comes with a bit of a disclaimer because it is about a pygmy right whale necropsy. So it's about a dead animal and the dissection and study of that dead animal. So it's a little bit gross. I wouldn't say it's super gross, but if you are squeamish about those things or, you know, just not in the place right now to... Um, to listen to that, uh, we wanted to just give you a bit of a warning on that. So take it away, Ben. Um, so it's not often that I get to see a live whale, which I know seems kind of weird considering that I work on them all the time. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, for me, one of the one of the most exciting things that I got to do was back in 2017, uh, a pygmy right whale um, had basically washed ashore and in 2015. And Museums Victoria, the company that I work for, went out, chopped off its head because it was the only part that they could bring back to the lab because the rest of it was so big. And we decided to dissect it a couple of years later. And uh, pygmy right whales are really, really strange animals uh, simply because we know very little about them. They're the smallest baleen whale in the world. They only get to about six meters in length, uh, two to three metric tons. And usually they're solitary animals. They just live their entire lives by themselves. They're very frequently seen uh, by humankind. Um, however, there's this one fantastic case off the coast of Portland uh, in Western Victoria, Australia, where there was a pod of about a hundred of them and they were just going around in circles, like a crop circle. And absolutely nobody has any idea what the hell they were doing, right? So we still don't know very much about this animal whatsoever. So we had the absolute privilege of dissecting uh, one of these whales. And it wasn't just any kind of whale, it was a, a, an infant whale, one that had only just recently died. And before we even got the scalpel to the flesh and started dissecting it and seeing the musculature, one of the most enthralling things for me uh, was looking at it and seeing the little hair follicles right on the tip of its rostrum or its nose. And then at that moment, you know, everything just kind of clicks and you go, of course it's a mammal. It, it has fur, you know, here is something that is, it's, it's clearly vestigial. It would have gotten rid of these hair follicles and some species they don't, they do keep them. I mean, you know, the tubercles in, um, in humpbacks, mm -hmm. you know, of those ones, um, yeah. they actually have a single yeah. hair follicle inside each of those tubercles. We don't quite know what exactly they use them for or why no. they're so pronounced on their face and on their flipper as well. But that was a really nice moment. And, you know, the whole time I was thinking of that US paleontologist, George Gaylord Simpson, and just thinking how far we've come, you know, here we've got something and here we have these incredible transitional forms that dictate to us exactly how these animals went back into the ocean. And this is the vestige of what we have today. And uh, it always it always shocks me as well. Uh, the effect that humans can have on the climate, you know, uh, we, we think of ourselves as being so numerous as being the top predator on, on the planet as well. And yet we know almost nothing about this animal at all. Um, in the last year, there was a new species of beach whale that was discovered. It, it's six meters long. Like, how is it hiding from us? And it demonstrates to us just how little we really know about the environment and how exciting for me that is. Um, and if we think we know very little about the modern environment, we know even less about past environments as well. Um, so you're looking at that animal and getting to see those hair follicles was a really fantastic moment for me. That was so awesome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, record with us. And hopefully one day we can figure out some of the crazy time zones and maybe have you back with uh, Sarah and Nicole Eric here as well, because I know that they would be super excited to ask you all sorts of questions. No, I'd love to come back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. I really, I had a lot of fun. Okay, is there anything that you want to plug? I know you have a really cool Instagram account. Uh, yeah, so if you guys are interested, you enjoyed this talk to some extent, what you can do is you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at a fool's experiment, a underscore fool's underscore experiment. I post a lot about whales and their evolution and the evolution of life and what we're doing to the planet today. So if you're at all interested, follow that. You can also follow another social media outlet that I have at the moment. Um, I talked about those killer sperm whales a little bit earlier. If you want to know more about that, follow the Lost World of Bayside 
on Instagram as well. I think you guys won't regret it. It's really fun. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such amazing. He has such incredible stories. Um, if you want to find more about Ben, you can check out our show notes. And of course, we'll be posting on social. But he is at fool at a fool's experiment with underscore. So a underscore fool's underscore experiment on Instagram and something very similar to that on Facebook. And I highly recommend because he posts really awesome pictures of fossils and big teeth. And he's doing a big um, series right now of crazy giant teeth and all sorts of different kind of animals. Ooh. Um, uh, extinct and uh, not extinct and it's super awesome and uh, he's great to have around and I'm so happy that we were able to talk to him. Thank you so much Ben. Alright so we have alluded to this a couple of times in our recording so far it's obviously uh, something being felt around the world right now. We're all living in quarantine we're all dealing with the realities of COVID-19 and all three of us have talked a couple of times with each other about the fact that as a result of some of the precautionary measures being put in place to keep people safe, which is vital, it has become harder in many instances to be sustainable. So we wanted to just kind of pull from our own life experiences right now and give some tips for our Tales of Saving Whales at the end of each episode about just how each of us are doing our best to stay green during quarantine, which has a unfortunate rhyme maybe hopeful rhyme <laughs> maybe a little bit um so actually i had a hard time thinking of something because uh i don't have a very big complicated life and a lot of things haven't changed i'm still able to recycle I'm still able to compost i'm not buying a lot of stuff i'm not ordering a lot of stuff because i don't have a ton of needs but i'm also in um, a slight financial situation so there's all of this kind of balance of things. So one of the biggest things, the biggest issues that I've had is the um, bags at grocery stores. There's, of course, been a lot of issues with bringing your own bags to the grocery stores now. This morning, I was able to carry my basket out, which was ridiculously overfull because I needed to buy a large coffee. Um, and so they're like, do you want to take two baskets? And I was like, no, I could do it. <laughs> and it was... Um, bad and I was like hobbling out I'm like no don't drop the avocados or the olives like that's just gonna be so bad and they're like I went to the stairs and they're like no there's a table set up for you really far down the aisle I'm like oh my god and it turned out to be fine and I got to use my bags which was great as opposed to last week when I used plastic bags for the first time at the grocery store in 12 years maybe um like since we got back from Australia yeah. I think um so it's rough, and I completely understand what why this is necessary. Um, so when there's the option, it's something to, like, maybe just bring and keep in your bag. Or, like, at my grocery store, they're letting you put them in a basket at the door, and you can grab them on your way out. Um, so something, it's just, like, just ask. It's not going to hurt to ask. If you have to use plastic bags, you have to, and then you can use them for garbage. And that's the way that it's going to be right now. Um, so that's something. Um, we posted about this actually today on social media and one of our storytellers, uh, Marcy, had a great tip which was use the mushroom paper bags that they have at grocery stores for your produce. Ooh. Um, it just is a great way to cut down if you have to put a lot of, buy a lot of produce and put them in bags, use the paper ones instead of the plastic nice. ones. It's not going to change anything at all, yeah. um, at checkout. So that's really great. And then the other thing I'm just going to say 
I don't know why people are doing this, but throw out your gloves and your masks. Don't leave them in yeah. the park. I don't know why this is a thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're preaching like, to the choir on that one, but yeah. Seriously. Yeah, but like, these are hazardous wastes now. Yeah. And you're just, like, aside from the increasing, sadly increasing garbage that's been happening in the park by my house, um, there's been an increase in hazardous waste of gloves and masks, yeah. which aren't hazardous after a while, but they're still hazardous when you take them off and leave them dripping on a tree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, dispose of your waste properly and safely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I got. Um, so mine is both, like, quarantine and green, and I think I've talked about it a little bit before, um, about um, reducing food waste, or somebody has talked about that before. So I've been just trying to be really creative with all of my food scraps. So um, my mom actually started doing this one, and then I stole it from her. I have um, actually a jar, but you could have a jar or a bag or whatever in the freezer, and I put, like, any vegetable scraps in there. Like, the only things I don't put in, I don't put ginger in, and I try not to put too much, like, kale stems or anything, um, and then I use it to make um, vegetable stock, um, just in my Instant Pot. So when the jars get full, I chuck the frozen bits and some water in my Instant Pot, and I make vegetable stock. Um, yeah, and I don't put the ginger in kale stocks and stuff, or just because it makes it taste gross. Um, <laughs> but then I realized you can both, you can saute kale stems, like if you don't want to use them in like a salad or something, you can cook them, or you can also pickle them. And they kind of fill that same like pickled green bean kind of situation in your mouth. Um, so those are, those are my um, green and not going to the grocery store as much um, tips. Well, we decided to use quarantine to start potty training our son, which is because we, it's a decision that, uh, you know, I've I've had a lot of wine, (laughs) but it's going okay. And we were using cloth diapers, so we aren't actually saving that many on disposable diapers, but we are saving a ton on wipes because we were still using disposable wipes when James was in diapers so that has made us feel a little bit better and for you know all of the many many accidents that have been happening <laughs> around the house we're just using uh, all of the many burp calls that we have left over from when James was an infant because uh, spit up happens and so does pee <laughs> so that has been one thing that we've decided to because we're home and you know let's tackle potty training with a 20 month old son and the other thing also to do with James is we've started to get really, he loves to color. He absolutely loves getting his crayons out and coloring and, and drawing pictures for mommy and daddy, which, you know, he just mastered the art of the single line today, actually. <laughs> so like, he was very proud of himself. Like, line! Big line! <laughs> um, very, very proud mama. But we obviously, you know, first of all, don't want to be wasting paper. And second of all, don't want to be going out to get paper or coloring books for him. So we've started to get really creative about what we let him draw. And we are not going just bonkers and letting him draw on the walls. (laughs) Um, Which is also why, you know, like some people are, if you have older kids and you have a whiteboard, fabulous, take the pictures of the beautiful creations that they come up with and have, you know, an electronic picture frame and you can just have it rotating through there. But I don't want to give a 20 month old child markers. I'm okay with crayons, but I'm not going to do the whiteboard marker route. 
However, we do still have a few things that are being delivered by Amazon. And so I've been saving for the last month or so the various cardboard boxes that our deliveries come in. And I also had a bunch of things for work that were delivered to my house since we started working for home from home that I had to receive here instead of where I would have received them at the office. So I kept those cardboard boxes as well and disinfected all of them. And those are now James's coloring boards. And they're <laughs> actually great. We might keep doing this afterwards. Because if you give a kid James's age just a single piece of paper, it's actually very hard to color on a single piece of paper if you haven't also mastered the art of holding it down with your other hand. Yeah, totally. Whereas cardboard is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's our tip. Trying to find creative ways to use I mean we would recycle it but it's nice if it can have another life and you know a a box can actually be colored many many days in a row so maybe I'll try and take some pictures of some of his art creations and we'll throw that up on on social at some point so I think that that brings us to the end of our anniversary episode I know it was a bit of a longer episode than we tend to do hopefully you have the time listener however you're doing right now to to enjoy spending some extra time with us we also just really wanted to spend some extra time together and and reminiscing about what matters right now because I find myself doing that a lot so in the spirit of that Sarah Lynn's what has been your favorite part of podcasting for this past year um all of it's been really great but honestly getting like a little note or an email or a message on social media from any of you guys has been so lovely and just like whoever gets it screenshots it and sends it to all of us and then we're like giddy happy kids all day like you have no idea like a little note of like i listened to your podcast and it was good like fills our day with joy so yeah (laughs) just knowing that you're out there is my favorite part yeah, no, that's definitely true. My boss listens to this, um, and she might be listening to it now, so hi. Um, but I think the the reviews, but also um, when we did the mailbag mm. episode in February for World Whale Day, um, not only did we get some amazing questions from our listeners, but I also kind of voluntold a bunch of my friends, but they came through and uh, had some really, really great questions. Um, so that was really good, just so that it's good to know that when the fear of not hearing back from anybody and not having anything to talk about is staring you in the face that you still have friends who have really random questions about whales because they're not this uh, Nicole and Sarah and don't have the answers. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed doing that episode. Plus we didn't end up meeting a lot of our friends questions because we had so many from you, our listeners, which was, which was so special. And I, it's the, my favorite part too. I just the other day we had Lindsay received it and she sent it to us in our group text a note from I'm I apologize if I'm not pronouncing your name properly but Mariki I think Marike and she signed off her note which was lovely we really really she's a listener in Germany hello Marike or however you pronounce your name and she signed her note best wishes have a whaley great day and I cry <laughs> reading that post when you sent it Linz just because you know the thought of of our podcast reaching people around the world especially right now is is really moving and 
we're so grateful to be able to do this and to be able to hopefully brighten all of your days because any time that we hear from you, it really brightens ours. And that is by far the best part about doing this. Um, so we do have some really exciting things coming up. Obviously, we're not done. We There are many, 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 many more stations to talk about and so many more whale tales to share. And so stay tuned to our various social media platforms because we will be making some exciting announcements in the next few months. And if you have one of those social media, like what month is it? What animal is being featured of the month? You probably know what's coming up for June. And if not, Google's your friend. And we can't wait to spend another year with all of you. We'd really love to hear your thoughts on this episode as well as any of our episodes. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org and find links to our various socials and you can drop us a line anywhere. Yeah, you can also tweet us directly if you want to be like, please stop sharing all of your emotional feelings. <laughs> um, I am at FHG07. Sarah is at Sarah with no H because H is you. Um, Sarah is at S-A-R-A-K given g-i-v-e-n and nicole is at nick f can with two n's c-a-n-n you can also head to our website to subscribe to our podcast check out our merchandise and learn more about coming a patron on patreon you and also while you're there you can read over 800 whale dolphin and porpoise stories and if you've seen a citation we would love to add your story to our library click the share link on our site contact us on social media whale tales org or email us a voice memo which is our favorite way to hear stories and tell us all about your incredible encounter that's whale-tales.org tales like the stories not tales like the animal thank you again for listening and for supporting us we will be back on the last wednesday of next month with more fun facts stories and super nerdy trivia to dive into thanks everybody and have a whaley great day <laughs>